What's this? A ranger caught off his guard? Welcome to Watch Party, Lord of the Rings on Prime, where we look at Tolkien's works through the lens of adaptation. I am joined today by your host, Michael Rowland, a.k.a. Boromir. And I am joined today by Jen Gallagher, a.k.a. Arwen Amdomniel. Ah, perfect. She is the star of today's episode, after all. And today, Jen, we're back. We're back. We've been doing so much Wheel of Time stuff, it's like I almost forgot that we're a Lord of the Rings podcast. (laughs) That's right, but we know where our true loyalties lie. We hope you guys have been enjoying the new Wheel of Time podcast. We've certainly been enjoying uh, just listening to all that content and being a part of it. And it is all out there on our website for you guys to download if you should choose to do so. But back to Lord of the Rings. Uh, we've got a great episode for you today. We're going to talk episode. some news. And it's just, and it's, you know, it's just you and me this week. We, we've done so many episodes with guests lately. Uh, you know, it's nice to get back just to the OGs, you know, get our That's flow right. going, talking about Lord of the Rings, with just the originals. The original two. We started it all. <laughs> we've got a great scene. We've got great scenes for you guys today, though. Uh, this is like my favorite part of Fellowship of the Ring, so I cannot wait to get started. Yeah, we're covering when uh, after so our last episode we co- covered uh, the Battle of Weathertop, and we um, covered that with uh, Dan from Voice of Geekdom, a great YouTuber. Go check his stuff out. And so when we left off, Frodo had been, just been stabbed by the, the Witch King. Aragorn had chased them all away, and that's where we, where we ended. So when we pick up today, picking up right from there, and then. Really, we're not covering very much time, like really only a few minutes. We're doing Fight to the Fords, and we're going to end today's episode uh, when Frodo gets to the River Bruinen and all the Nazgul get washed away. So that's really like, I don't know, seven, eight minutes of the movie. But there is so much to talk about in, so much. in those few minutes that this might end up being one of our longest episodes, I feel like, because there's so much good stuff to get into. Oh, yes. Juicy, juicy. But before we get into all that good stuff, we got a few Spoiler, 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 some news. We got to talk about the show that that's, uh, you know, the Amazon show. We got to talk about it. And uh, since we last talked about some news, a few interesting tidbits have been leaked out. Again, this all comes courtesy of Fellowship of Fans. You know, someone else has got to be out there doing breaking news, but I just haven't found it. It's all Fellowship no. of Fans these days. No Fellowship and his legion of spies. Yeah, legion apparently. of, yeah, he's like uh, Saruman <laughs> with his web of spies. That's right. Uh, but per Fellowship. Wayne Arthur, who was previously rumored to be playing a major dwarf, is confirmed to be playing Durin. He's said to have mm-hmm. gold feet, which that's got to mean like gold shoes, obviously, I would hope. Um, and there will be a King Durin and a son uh, who will also be named Durin. So King Durin and Prince Durin. Um, this is really interesting. And just to give you listeners, if you're not already like steeped in the lore and if you're not familiar with who Durin is, you've probably heard the the name Durin in connection with the phrase Durin's folk, which refers to uh, one of the seven um, peoples of the dwarves. Um, they're called the Longbeards. It's where Gimli's from, uh, Thorin Oakenshield. Really, all the dwarves that we focus on for the most part throughout the Legendarium come from the Longbeards, the line of Durin. We don't know a whole lot about the other lines of dwarves. They're kind of a mystery. Um, mm-hmm. So the so Durin's folk, they're really the dwarves that we care about. And Durin is the first. He's said to be the oldest of the seven fathers of the dwarves. He founded Khazad-dûm, which is the Mines of Moria that we see in Fellowship of the Rings. 
And he founded it way back in the years of trees. You know, so that should also tell you how important the mines of Moria are. They're one of the few places, the few sets, if you will, um, that stems back, at least in Middle Earth, that stems all the way back to the years of the trees. Um, he's called Durin the Deathless, not only because he lived longer than any other dwarf, but also because it was believed that he would be reincarnated six times. So every oh, subsequent wow. Durin was actually believed to be the reincarnation of the original Durin. Uh, so that's also something very interesting about dwarven culture, and maybe you could call it sort of a, a dwarvish religion, how they conceptualize their mortality, uh, whereas elves are immortal, or you know, to, to be more accurate, they're immortal within the confines of Ard- Arda, um, so they will last, and their spirits will last as long as Arda lasts, as long as the world lasts. Whereas men are mortal within the confines of Arda, but if they die, their spirit, we don't know what happens to their spirit. Um, I think it's sort of believed they go and join the Luvatar, um, but once they die, they leave this world. The dwarves believe that they are mortal in the way that men are, but also that they can be reincarnated, re-embodied, um, possibly. So certainly first of Durin. all, yeah, this is so interesting because I think people don't really know that there's like actually different belief systems and religions within Middle Earth. I think that's really interesting. Second of all, what if he's reincarnated as an elf? What if he comes back <laughs> as an elf? Will that be a problem? Will that be an existential crisis for him? A little him? bit of self-loathing. <laughs> What would he want to come back as? These are all questions right, we may right, never right. know the answers to. Right. I, I think we can assume that if reincarnation, if their beliefs are correct, that they probably only get reincarnated as dwarves. But uh, I like the idea. Are you that- sure about that? I mean, they could come back as anything. Uh, <laughs> I don't yeah, know. Yeah. Somewhat fan fiction, fan fiction idea. Right, right. Who does Doreen come back as? So this piece of information does potentially help us place where the plot is going to be. And mostly it sort of confirms what we've already learned um, because we know that there were two Durins during the second age. And that's Durin the third, who was king during the time of Celebrimbor when, and when Celebrimbor forged the rings of power. And in fact, he bore the mightiest of the dwarven rings. And it was actually believed that Celebrimbor gave it to him as a gift. So whereas most of the other rings, the three elvish rings of power were given to the elves by Celebrimbor, and actually hidden. Um, and this one ring was given to the dwarves, at least according to dwell, dwarven mythology. They believed, or they like to say that it was given by Celebrimbor. But the other rings were snatched up by Sauron. And so all the dwarves and uh, men that received the rings from Sauron, they were all, it was all kind of tainted in that way. So maybe that one ring that Durin had was actually given by Celebrimbor, or maybe that was just uh, a tale that the dwarves told to distance the legend of the Longbeard's um, mm. ring from the taint of Sauron. They didn't want to believe that that their ring, that they could have been fooled by Sauron in the same way as all the other dwarves in the lower dwarven houses. Um, but anyway, that mythology sort of does say they believe that it was gifted by Celebrimbor, which is totally possible because Celebrimbor did have a very close relationship with the dwarves of uh, Khazad-dûm. He is close friends with Narvi, the, the dwarf, and they together they uh, crafted the doors of Moria. So there is a relationship there, so it would totally make sense for him to have gifted that ring. Yeah, totally makes sense, and we'd like to see that on screen, right? Yeah, I'd like yeah. I'd like to if, see that uh, Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, so that's the first Durin that we get in the Second Age. The second possible Durin is Durin the Fourth, who reigned at the end of the Second Age, and that was during the War of the Last Alliance. Now, even though we have two Durins during the Second Age, because of the distance between them in years, it Durin the Fourth wouldn't be the son of Durin the Third. That just you know, dwarves are long lived, um, but not that long lived. There's like a a couple thousand years or a thousand, 1500 years between those two Durins. So as old as Durin was, and even though he's said to be the longest lived, um, it's really unlikely that Durin the fourth could be, or pretty much impossible that Durin the fourth could be the son of Durin the third, which makes it interesting that they're choosing to have a King Durin and have his son also named Durin in the show, which potentially indicates that they are, either going to make the dwarves live longer or they're going to compress the timeline enough so that the D- Prince Durin, the son of the King Durin in the start of the show becomes Durin the fourth who lives during the um, war of the last Alliance. So that is an interesting possibility. And that might be what that indicates. Yeah. Either one. I mean, we know that they are messing with the timeline quite a bit just based on previous news that we've gotten should that news prove to be correct so i think either one is plausible right or it's you know it's i think the fact that they would have the son named doran indicates that they're going to have uh stories in which they both play a part i mean the more i think about it the more i really believe that they're going to compress it so that prince doran becomes king during during the war of the last alliance and that maybe they'll tell sort of a chronological uh they'll have a chronological storytelling style that takes us from the time of Celebrimbor, we see the forging of the rings and connects us from father to son into the time of the war of the last Alliance. And we love that because you get to you. It's clear. It's concise. It's not too confusing that way. We can really get the history and background, which makes the story moving forward more poignant. Yeah. I I think it, I do like it. The only um, thing I don't like about it is that it limits their options in terms of creating spinoffs potentially, because when you compress the timeline like that, you are cutting out hundreds of years. And, you know, Tolkien struggled with timelines himself. He worked really, really, really hard to make sure everything lined up. And he thought deep and long and hard about uh, making sure all these events worked out. I mean, if you if you read uh, any of The Nature of Middle-Earth, which is mm-hmm. uh, a recently released compilation of Tolkien's writings edited by Carl Hofstadter, it's sort of an extension of the History of Middle-Earth volumes. Uh, you you see how hard Tolkien worked to try and work out the timelines. He he did he had charts and like uh you know took me back to high school math honestly looking looking at all these charts where he was trying to work out how uh, many generations of elves there were before the Valar came over and picked them up and took them over to Valinor. So like what's what was the population size of the elves? How big did they need to be? Which means how many uh, generations of elves did there need to be? Very and thorough. he was toying around with it. He did several iterations of this process. And so he mm-hmm. cared a lot about timelines. And um, so sure. for the showrunners here to tweak it, I'm not so worried about changing the lore like you have to get everything exactly the same but just the difficulty the challenge and when you compress it you're pulling out hundreds of years which potentially forces you to pull out different storylines and or lose characters and lose things like that um which would limit their the spin-off potential subsequent show potential there's for sure a way to do it without without cutting but sort of glazing over with narration mm-hmm. narration style you know later he like they a lot of what they did in fellowship of the ring actually 
Um, I think there's a way it could be done without screwing up the timeline, just focusing on the important bits. So, yeah. Yeah, we'll see what they do with it. Um, I think it's exciting, this plot line, and you love dwarves, so we'll, we're, we're going to get a lot of dwarves. That's yeah. pretty cool. And I, th- I think and, the thing I love about dwarves is just the mystery, how much is unknown. That's kind of, that's what makes yeah. a lot of Tolkien so special is that the depth of it comes from the hidden lore, the long lost lore that is hinted at, but that you don't know everything about. And so when I remember reading Lord of the Rings, obviously before I knew about the Silmarillion and I, before I knew about the backstory and that mystery of all the unanswered questions that the story itself creates was part of what I loved about Lord of the Rings. And so the dwarves epitomize that for me because even after reading the Silmarillion and the Unfinished Tales and all this extended stuff, there is still so much that is unknown about the dwarves. And so I've never lost that feeling um, when it comes to the dwarves. That mystery. And speaking of mystery or feminine mystique, Mm. uh, per fellowship, there will be a dwarven queen as a featured character who will be played by a diverse female. Um, I'm not sure what that means, but it, it's pretty cool. We get a dwarven queen and what yeah. will she look like? Well, we know a little bit. Um, dwarven women will be featured, but no, they will not have beards. The uh. million dollar question. <laughs> yeah, I think it's probably a good decision not to give them beards just because that would just become such a focus of, you know, social media attention and everyone would be talking about you know, the beards on, on the female characters. Um, and it probably shouldn't be a distraction, but if they did it, it would probably just kind of take over conversation in a way that they aren't interested in, in doing. Um, and also it's it's not, you know, dwarven women aren't confirmed to have beards. I think there's one like joking reference to it somewhere or speculative reference, but, uh, by no means is it like canon that, dwarven women have beards so it's not like they're changing something there it's also well they are changing i there are no dwarven queens that i know of in the in the lore (laughs) there are no dwarven characters except for thorin's mother she's the only one who's ever even referenced that's right so this is a totally new invented character it could go any which way we really have no idea it's just a fun tidbit to know yeah it is actually totally wild to consider the fact that there are not only no major female dwarven characters, which there aren't a lot of female um, characters in the other races either in the story, but there are a few. But in fact, there are basically no dwarven women referenced ever anywhere um, other than I think Thorin's mother. I can't off the top of my head think of any other female dwarven characters. Um, and she's only referenced in, in passing because she's the connection between Thorin and Feeling Keeley, who are his uh, nephews. So um, it's not like she has a role. It's just she's referenced because of the family connection. So it's kind of amazing that there's no reference to, to female character. We don't know what their culture is like, what their marriages are like. Um, you know, we get some hint hint at it in History of Middle Earth and some of those deeper volumes, but nowhere in The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings is there any sort of uh, elaboration on that. So I'm, I'm excited for that because obviously there must be dwarven women and they must have had a presence. And if there's a queen, she's going to have some power. So I'm very glad that they're not missing an opportunity to, um, to, to use those characters to full effect. Yeah. I'm glad also that they're giving uh, female dwarves their time in the sun. <laughs> and if you're going to invent a character, why not make it a female? Mm-hmm. I think this is a good call and it's going to be interesting. Yeah. Like, I mean, just think about, think about, uh, Tariel. Like that worked out great. 
Everyone oh. loved Toriel, oh. vented character, female character. <laughs> oh, he knows how I feel about this. <laughs> we'll get to that later. Tariel we will cover the Hobbit Tariel notwithstanding, no, I agree with you. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I think it'll be great. Um, last little bit of Dwarven news here is that the sets, the Dwarven sets are going to be aesthetically similar to Peter Jackson's Dwarven sets. So another data point indicating that there will be some um, aesthetic and stylistic and artistic elements that will create continuity between Peter Jackson's trilogies and the show, at least in terms of look and feel. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about Kellen Brimbor, our man. We have talked a lot about him, um, but he will definitely be in the upcoming Amazon Prime series, and we will see the forging of the rings. So a lot of props have supposedly been made for this character. Um, he is a, a builder, a craftsman, and so that makes sense. Um, I'm, I'm really excited. We thought all along we would see the forging of the rings. It's so critical to the entire plot, uh, that that's a smart choice. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm relieved to hear this because after the last batch of news, um, there had been a lot of speculation that the, especially with Isildur being featured in the first episode, we were starting to think, well, are they really going to include the forging of the rings in the show and in the main plot line? And we still don't 100% know whether or not he will have an ongoing uh, presence in the narrative, you know, from start to finish uh, through season one or subsequent seasons. We don't know if they're going to be following this narrative or whether it's going to be just featured in the first two episodes. Um, but we were kind of worried, well, with Isildur being featured in episode one, that means they're going to be focusing on the War of the Last Alliance here. So are they are they going to be jumping back and forth to the, the forging, which is in the middle of the Second Age, whereas the War of the Last Alliance is at the end of the Second Age? Or are they just going to gloss over it in episode one as sort of like a, a prologue the way that they did with Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings? And we'll just see glimpses, but we won't get into his character. This tweet from Fellowship of Fans indicates that he will have more of a presence than just a mere gloss over in the prologue. He will definitely be in the show. Um, and the fact that a lot, have, a lot of props have been made for this character suggests it's not, you know, 100% proof or anything, but at least suggests that he will have an ongoing presence because why would you have a lot of different props if he's just going to be showing up in a scene or two in prologue style fashion? So, you know, a little bit of evidence that we will definitely get to see the Kellenbrimbor plot lines in more than just a quick prologue. I think Kellenbrimbor is actually going to be the next Aragorn in a way because, you know, he's he's definitely flawed but he's going to be some type of hero and he's going to be a main character. He's going to be gorgeous and dripping with sexuality. Is that what you're saying? I think he's our new Aragorn and his foil. Speaking of the enemy, Mm -hmm. Joseph Mawe, uncle Benjen from game of Thrones, who we speculated could be playing Sauron is playing an elf, but corrupted and tortured and will be on the same human village sets as Sauron. Yeah, so this is part of a batch of tweets from from Fellowship about Sauron and the character that Joseph Maui will be playing. And so uh, the, the first thing that, that Fellowship tweets that I think is really interesting is that Sauron will 100% be a character in season one. We did not previously know this, at least not for sure. Um, there was some speculation that he might be certainly if we get into the forging plot lines um and if we are getting quickly through the forging plot lines then we would definitely want to see or need to see sauron as anatar but we didn't really know that for sure 
And so this is the first confirmation we've ever gotten that Sauron will be in season one as like a real character. Uh, the actor who was playing Sauron was reportedly on human village sets. So and it's quote unquote human village um, in Middle Earth, not in Numenor, and for many months. So this is not Sauron on the Numenorean set, you know, after he was captured. It is while he is in Middle Earth. Now, that doesn't necessarily place it in the timeline for us because Sauron had a presence in Middle Earth before he was captured, obviously, but also after the downfall of Numenor, before the War of the Last Alliance. He, you know, flees back to his spirit, flies back to Middle Earth, and he takes up residence back in Mordor. And, you know, he could, for the next hundred years or so, when he's building his power back up, um, he could be roaming around in a human village set. So we don't know exactly what the timeline is, but it is interesting that he will be on a human village set in Middle Earth, not Numenor, which makes me think that he will be in a human village set amongst one of the Easterlings, the Haradrim, or at least their forebears, which mm. I hope is the case because I've been dying for some plot lines involving those races of men, those tribes of men. Um, you know, in the Lord of the Rings, we mostly focus on the men of the West. Those are the good guys, uh, you know, um, the Dunedain, the Rohirrim, men of Gondor. And we only know of the Easterlings and the Haradrim as, you know, those those bad dudes from the East who are hanging out with Sauron and who are under his sway. But we know from some of the some of the Silmarillion Unfinished Tales and some of the extended stories, and also from S Sam's inner monologue when he sees um, an Easterling die uh, right before getting captured by Faramir, um, that Tolkien did not consider these men inherently evil. They were just men who unfortunately were under the sway of Sauron and who had been dominated by him for years and years and years. And you can imagine that there was infighting and um, political rebellion within those groups potentially, and that there was a lot of struggling going on and that Sauron had to subdue them through force and violence and that uh, there, there are a lot of stories to be told potentially amongst those human groups. And so I was really hoping that we would see some of that, see Sauron and the way that he coalesced power in the East through force, through violence. Um, and potentially we might see some of those humans try and rebel and ultimately they fail, of course. So it's a very tragic story, but sometimes um, hope, the strongest messages of hope are told in places and situations that are hopeless. And mm -hmm. I think that we could see some of the most profound messages of hope told through the stories of these Eastern men. So that's a lot to, to take from this one little tweet that Sauron will be on a human village set in Middle Earth, but it just gives a little bit of fuel to my fire that potentially we might see some of those uh, human races uh, get some time in the sun. Yeah, I definitely. And I'm also so curious about Joseph Mawe's character. It's so mm -hmm. interesting that he is an elf who is corrupted and tortured. And, and is he like an early example of an Urukai? Is he an early example of an orc? Yeah, yeah. You know, because there's speculation that um, that orcs are actually tortured elves. Right, right. Yeah, this this is the most interesting piece of news I think we're going to discuss today. So Joseph Maui will be on the same set that Sauron was also seen on. And he is an elf. It's confirmed that he is an elf. But he is leading the pack of orcs that take over this human village. And he is apparently seen as a father figure to the orcs. And his name is actually Adar, or at least that's the name that's been released. We don't know if that's the, the name that's um, just a code name or if that's actually his character's name. Um, but 
Adar, coincidentally, translates in Sindarin to father. Um, and the orcs see him as a father figure, which is so bizarre that a- an bizarre. elf could lead orcs. I mean, th- there's no, and I'll tell you, I always hesitate to say, oh, this makes me concerned or I'm worried about this because I don't have that. <laughs> I don't have that attitude towards this, but the show, but if anything would make me concerned a little bit, it's this because there is no precedent anywhere in the legendarium for the idea that an elf would be so corrupted that they would lead orcs. And in fact, Tolkien, and I came across this, there's references to it in the nature of middle earth, which I've been reading through. Tolkien said that no elf ever, you know, willingly uh, served Morgoth. They were sometimes forced to serve him through, you know, torture and, you know, they were mm-hmm. literally physically forced and dominated, but none ever were so corrupted that they willingly served the evil side. And it sounds I, yeah. like here we're seeing an elf that is exactly that, that's corrupt, so corrupted that they are willingly leading orcs. And it's, uh, right. Know, I'm a I think about that. what's more concerning to me is that I don't want them to spend too much time on orcs and humanizing them so much as seeing someone as a father figure mm. because Tolkien himself didn't spend too much time on the villains. He he spent some time on the main villain, but orcs, you know, they're number one, they're just not that interesting to me. And and so I'm hoping there's not a lot of deep diving into right. the, or- <laughs> the orcs and their background and their evolution. Right. It could be interesting to have a touch of that, but I don't want it too heavily imbalanced because I, I think actually that Tolkien didn't spend a lot of time doing that. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's that's such a tough topic because that is sort of that is one of the very legitimate criticisms, I think, of Tolkien is that the extent to which orcs, there is no backstory. There is no humanity to them. They are fully evil. There's no exploration ever But there's way. exploration of other evil characters, you know, of, of, of course, the big, the big bad characters. Yeah. I think there's enough that you can. Yeah. But the, the whole idea of having, having a whole race of people who are irredeemable is actually very mm-hmm. contrary to the, the themes that Tolkien explores where everybody gets a chance at redemption. Um, you know, you see time and time again, you know, every character that is struggling with temptation and with uh, the influence of evil always has an opportunity to redeem themselves. Everyone but the orcs. They're, they're, I think, yeah. They're just well, persona I think the non way grata. I've gotten around that, I think the way that I've mentally just thought, conceived of orcs is more animal than human. Yeah. They're really not supposed to be conceived of as human beings right. or anything resembling human beings. Um. Which is something that Tolkien, I think, struggled with. Uh, you know, we see this in the History of Middle Earth volumes, and he wrote several essays and worked on this concept even later into life. He was not satisfied with the origin story of them being twisted and corrupted right. elves because, um, first of all, that indicates that they were so that they were originally an elf. Which these are, you know, these are good um, individuals with souls. These are good peoples mm-hmm. with souls. How do you? twist and corrupt one person, you know, or even you get a whole generation of elves and you twist and corrupt them and you force them to breed. And then you corrupt them so much that the corruption passes through to the children and to all subsequent heirs. And Tolkien's like, that doesn't really make sense. That can't work that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, Morgoth didn't have that level of power to so fully twist the very nature of an elf that all of their children and children's children um, mm-hmm. for all time thereafter would be this corrupted, this corrupted group because he didn't like the idea that that evil could be uh, imbued in the core of 
someone's being. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's really struggled with that. And so I think he sort of wrote himself into a corner. He didn't mean for orcs to end up that way. Um, but that's, you know, at, by the time that he was really struggling with it, you know, books had been released. Um, so he was always trying to reconcile these issues later on. So it's, it's, it's very, very, <laughs> it's very interesting. Yeah, it's a little complicated. I think that it started as, you know, in the Hobbit, they are, they're villains. They're more like goblins, right? They, at mm-hmm. one point, the two were interchangeable. They're not later, but at one point, the two were interchangeable, which he even said. Well, I think that, they're, I mean, they're, they're all of this, they're all interchangeable in the sense that they're all of the same sort of race. I mean, maybe there are some that are bigger and smaller because yeah. they live in the mountains or they're, you know, whatever, but they're all kind of under one umbrella. Right. But I think originally he was writing a children's story and and the villains can be simplified in children's story. Right. You don't have to you don't have to dig a little deeper and give a explanation and background because he does a lot of exploring of good and evil within the, the human characters, the more mm-hmm. human characters. But he definitely, as you said, grappled with them, I think, later on as his stories evolved, as his audience evolved and he gave them language and language is culture. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I think these these questions arose for him later, <laughs> but and, it's you know, funny that we're still talking about right. them now. And your idea that you, you mentioned that you think of them or thought of them as maybe a little more animalistic, you know, not having souls, for example. But um, Tolkien actually considered that as an option. It's like, well, maybe um, they're just sort of inanimate objects uh, that are fueled f- purely by Morgoth's will, you know, going back to the first age and that that he sort of they're automatons sort of evil animalistic automatons that um, just followed his orders that he controlled like a, you know, a puppet with strings. And he ultimately kind of rejected that for, you know, a variety of reasons, but that thinking did play a role, I think, in how he conceptualized Mm -hmm. them at some point. But it's funny, you know, you think about um, when Sam, uh, we do hear a lot of orc interactions at various points in the Lord Mm -hmm. of the Rings. And the one that really comes to mind is when Frodo gets captured by the orcs after being stung by Shilob, uh, Shilob and Sam's hiding. And so he hears the orcs. There's two orcs that pick him up mm-hmm. and he hears their exchange. And, you know, their their dialogue, it sounds very human. You know, they're mm-hmm. gruff. They're sort of rough and tumble humans, but it still sounds like normal human dialogue. It's not animalistic at all. And they have fears and they have machinations and they're like, oh, we think the bosses are are screwing this mm-hmm. up and, you know, Maybe when this is all over, we'll go off and start a gang out in the in the mountains somewhere and do our own thing. <laughs> like they have plans and desires, mm-hmm. and there's there is it does. Whenever you hear them talk and have dialogue, it does feel like that there should be more there. Um, and he wrote them as individuals and groups with potentially culture and community, but you just never see it. He never explores it. Um, right. So maybe they will be trying to tackle that a little bit. It'll be really hard to do because Tolkien never does. And I am a little worried, like you, that if they're delving into redemption arcs for orcs, that would be interesting. It would be interesting. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, I don't know what to think about it, but it would definitely be interesting. (laughs) Well, I guess we can't underestimate uh, the role that orcs will play. Yeah. But But supposedly, you know, last word on this little piece of news, uh, we know that Sauron and Joseph Maui's character, Adar, the, the corrupted elf who leads orcs, that those two characters will 
face off at some point. They're both going to be in the human village at the same time. They're going to interact, I guess, sort of as adversaries. I mean, I assume Sauron wins that duel, if a duel it is. Um, but it's it's interesting that they would have any sort of face off because I would have assumed that any group of orcs and any sort of general leading them um, would ultimately be under the control of Sauron in the first place. So I, I wonder what plot line could lead to this corrupted elf who's leading orcs facing off against Sauron in an adversarial way. It's really kind of hmm. an interesting thought experiment. So interesting. Yeah, maybe when he goes for the elves, then Joseph Mawe's tortured and he's got to pick sides. Who knows? If you're enjoying Watch Party, Lord of the Rings, you really should check out our Wheel of Time podcast hosted by Rourke Narmston. Rourke is a Wheel of Time expert and each week breaks down the latest episode from Amazon's adaptation of The Wheel of Time with a panel of brilliant and funny guests who have never read the books. If you've already read The Wheel of Time books, this podcast will be fun for you because you'll get to experience the show through the eyes of first-timers. And if you're new to The Wheel of Time universe yourself, then Watch Party Wheel of Time is really perfect because there are no spoilers. That's right, Watch Party Wheel of Time gives you spoiler-free analysis and discussion of each episode. Check it out today, available on every major podcasting platform. Watch Party Wheel of Time. Yeah, well, exciting news. We've got updates trickling in, but lest we waste one more second, I think it's time to jump into the Fellowship of the Ring, continuing on. We're going to jump back in with the Caverns of Isengard scene. So, in this scene, Aragorn reveals Frodo has been stabbed by a Morgul blade, which is beyond his skill to heal. He throws Frodo over his shoulder and says Frodo must be taken to the elves. This is beyond my skill to heal. He needs elvish medicine. They hurry off, but Sam says it's six days to Rivendell, and Frodo will never make it. Very pessimistic. Aragorn whispers, hold on, Frodo, and Frodo cries out in agony for Gandalf. Cut back to Isengard, where the destruction of the natural world is on full display. The camera pans the deep caverns where orcs toil to build armor and weapons. We see a moth fly to Gandalf, imprisoned at the top of the tower. Gandalf catches the moth, whispers a message, and releases it, just as the camera dives down the tower dramatically once again into the depths of the caverns. Close-up shots of the orcs at work follow as Saruman surveys the scene. He pauses at the breeding grounds for the Urukai. A brand new Uruk emerges from the mud, strangling the orc who stands above him, and Saruman looks delighted, and the orcs look positively terrified. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man, this is... uh... So you know that the Weathertop scene, this is one of the first scenes that Aragorn or that Viggo Mortensen ever filmed. That's right. He was flown out. He was a replacement. So he was just thrown right into it, which is just amazing because he really delivers. And he was such a good swordsman. They said that he'd never held a sword before this. And and by the end of it, he was like a master swordsman. He was a quick study. Yeah. Well, because um, he would actually carry around his sword everywhere. He was like, he's pretty method. He's not like Daniel Day-Lewis method, but he's fairly method. And he would carry it around just so he would get used to walking with it. And, you know, so his gait would adjust. And, and that stuff and makes that. all the difference, though. Like yeah. that makes that kind of thing makes all the difference in believability to an audience. Uh, totally. Totally. And there's a funny story that he tells in the appendices about how he was walking around the town 
um, you know, they, they weren't shooting, but he was walking around the town with this sword and the police got called on. Someone called the police because he oh my gosh. was a weirdo <laughs> just walking around town with this massive sword. With a sword. That's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. he He's great in this scene. I think, man, there's a lot to unpack in this. Yeah. I think I'll start with... Uh, the agonizing cry that Frodo lets out, just crying for Gandalf. Like there's something that gets me in that scene because it's like a child crying out for its father, its parents, mm. when they've been hurt. Right. And he's so vulnerable and like how and how could he have seen this coming? And he just lets out this wail and you feel such sadness for him and his situation that he's he's vulnerable he's in the forest he's been stabbed right uh, and he's just this little hobbit who's never left the shire <laughs> here he is totally. and it's it's a tough scene it's a really tough scene and, and you a, just feel yeah it's panic it's a and it's a clever and effective way for them to tie his plot line um and his scenes in with the gandalf scenes we see in in mm. isengard and always kind of tying the two together because that is part of the drama of Frodo's journey right now is that he expected to meet with Gandalf in the Shire and Gandalf was going to travel with him. So, but Gandalf didn't come. So he had to leave on his own and um, that's in the book. And then in the movie, they did the same thing where, but in a different place where Gandalf was supposed to meet him at the end of the Prancing Pony, but Gandalf didn't show. So now he has to have this, make this critical decision. Am I going to go on alone? And he makes the very wise choice because he is the best hobbit in all the shire uh, and brave choice to go on alone and not sit and wait uh, but he's always but he's been without gandalf this whole time and the absence of gandalf when they need him in this for kind of characterizes the struggle of this for them of this first uh, sort of chapter of their journey and yeah you absolutely feel it and they do that a little bit in the books too there are a couple instances where they like I think that as they're getting to Weathertop, um, Aragorn finds uh, runes, uh, like a stack of stones with Gandalf's mm-hmm. runes on them, I think, or, or a message. Maybe not Gandalf's runes, mm-hmm. but a message. But Aragorn says, oh, I, you know, I think there's evidence that Gandalf was here. Um, and so in the book, they, they, that, the effect of that is sort of similar, where we're being reminded that Gandalf um, should have been here, but where is he now and, and what happened? And I love that, you know, as you said, it's a really nice segue to cut back to Isengard where you see that he's been imprisoned. And I like that we find this out now because in the book we find it out so much later subsequently, you know, when Gandalf is telling him what happens. But here in the movies, we get it a lot earlier. Right. And so it's a very, there's some explanation. You know, we don't think he's just abandoned them, but no, he is indeed imprisoned at the top of the tower, uh, which this man... So the scene in Isengard, first of all, no trees were heard in the filming of this scene. <laughs> Just the trees in my soul. But they, they actually planted fake trees to be ripped out by the roots. Oh, did they crazy. really? Crazy. Yes, a fake. Well, in a while, I don't think it was a fake tree. I think it was a real. I, I need to double check. They, they did not uproot a real tree. They somehow managed to to do all orchestrate all of this and get a tree stationed where they wanted it right. and rip it down so they they created sort of a fabricated tree for them to rip out of the ground so it's not yes CGI. yes and i can't imagine the time that must have taken um but i just i really love this scene when you see all of this destruction and 
all of the natural world being ripped up and then you see this beautiful delicate moth fly across the camera Mm -hmm. and the beautiful uh, music that accompanies it. And apparently also, side note, moths live like 24 hours. So this moth, they had to like time this really carefully. Hey, he was a star. You know, most moths. He should have his own IMDb. (laughs) Let's make an IMDb for this moth. Let's let's make, yeah, let's make a Twitter account for this moth, you know. What's his name? Someone name him. How about Whisper the Moth? Whisper the (laughs) Moth. Hey, yeah, I mean, Gandalf whispered to him and he carried the message to uh, Gwaihir the Windlord. So very, very important role for a moth. Exactly. It's a critical role. He saves Gandalf's life. Um, but what, one of then, the things that struck me about the transition from Weathertop to uh, Isengard is, so we're kind of transitioning from evil to evil, but they are very different in look and feel. So, um, mm. you know, on Weathertop, we see the Nazgul attack and they're in the books more. They're just shadows or this, you know, the embodiment of fear, but they're not actually embodied. They're actually just shadows, you know, the, and uh, the other characters don't see or feel them. It's just Frodo that can see and feel and interacts with these uh, the Nazgul. Uh, but in, in the movie, of course, they're embodied a little more, so there's an actual battle. Uh, but there's kind of a ghostly character to them, and as opposed to in Isengard, you know, the orcs are it's very um, terrestrial and it's muddy and it's dirty, and there's the bellows right. and the fires and they're banging their anvils, you know, and, and whereas the the last thing we see of the Nazgul on Weathertop is the the withering blade, which a quick note on that. It's, I think it's a very interesting thing that I want to spend a second on. Uh, the withering blade echoes Beowulf. Um, and we no know way. It does because uh, Tolkien was uh, a Beowulf expert. Um, oh, I thought you, sorry. I thought you meant literally for a second. <laughs> you're oh. saying it, it. I gotcha. I was like, I never caught that, but I see what you're saying. Yeah, if you, if you if you turn up the audio and if you play it backwards, then <laughs> Beowulf. Uh, no, no, it's thematically. It thematically right. echoes Beowulf. Yes, got it. Um, it. And in Beowulf, the hero's blade melts after he kills Grendel's mother and cuts off Grendel's head, which was like a pivotal moment in the story. And now, Tolkien claims in a letter that he wasn't consciously thinking about that scene when he wrote the withering blade of the Nazgul on Weathertop. Um, but of course, Tolkien was a Beowulf scholar, so it probably unconsciously played a role. Um, there are a couple other examples throughout the Legendarium uh, of themes or images that people speculate were drawn from Beowulf or other classical medieval stories, uh, which Tolkien, whether or not he intended to do it or deliberately did it, you know, that's all part of the lobster pot that is his brain. And, you know, he unknowingly sort of pluck some of those images probably out and they work their way into the story. So I think that's kind of interesting. So interesting. Yeah. That's when he, when he does pick up the blade, you see the serious, the seriousness of that wound when Aragorn picks up the blade and it dissolves. There's like an unnatural element to this blade and you get right away. This is bad. This is not going to be a normal, a normal wound. Right. And it really underscores that point. So can we talk about something from Isengard that is on rewatch? I remember thinking about this when I watched it the first time, um, but it goes so quickly that you kind of like don't think about it too much. But on rewatch, I'm just watching going, what are these mud pits where all the orc are? They're just legions of orcs being grown in the mud. 
Yes, is that that's how right. orcs it's a breeding, are made as well? Yeah, they're breeding disgusting. them in the mud. It's disgusting. Yeah. yeah, it's effective in that we are like, oh, this is gross. Like clearly, these beings are corrupted. You really get that uh, based on the way they're right. born. And I do think, you know, it it just toes the line. This scene where the Urukai <laughs> is born and strangles the orc that just helped yeah. bring him into the world. It verges on so so cheesy. Almost campy, yeah, almost campy. But it does, it does somehow work. I don't, you really get the villain element and it, it kind of works for me. What do you think on a rewatch? It uh, it works for me now. I mean, I'm kind of at the point where I've seen it so many times that I, I don't have a reaction to it. Just accept it. Yeah, and I can't really, I honestly can't remember how I felt about it at, uh, when I saw it the first time. But it's interesting because... Um, you know, here Peter Jackson is choosing to visually depict something that is never visually depicted or even confirmed or explained in the books, which is how do orcs procreate? Um, and of course, what we were just talking about, if in the Silmarillion they were originally elves or corrupted, that would, you know, that would suggest that like elves or like men or any other being, they would procreate through, you know, the normal means, you know. Wait, how do people cro- procreate? Uh, all right we'll save that for the gray havens all right (laughs) the birds and the bees uh the ants and the trees um but you know one orc takes another orc out to the movies buys him some popcorn (laughs) not dinner first puts on some slow jams actually probably put on like some metallica or death metal that's their romantic music definitely definitely no no shade no shade to you death heads metal heads But yeah, I mean, so um, Peter Jackson says, well, I'm not going to do that. Um, I'm going to show them as procreating or not procreating, but being bred in this sort of in pods, basically in mud pods. And that fits. That fits. Like there is an unnaturalness to this. Yeah. But so I think there's, it's interesting to look a little bit deeper into this because there is textual evidence for this possible method of procreation. Uh, for for the orcs and like i said it is not really explicitly explained certainly not anywhere in the lord of the rings uh, itself but tolkien did toy with this method of procreation so let's take it back a little bit in the silmarillion orcs are and we've already talked about this they were elves they were east elves or the avari uh, who the elves who didn't travel to valinor they were after being awoken they were captured, enslaved, tortured, and bred by Morgoth. And it is said that they multiplied like elves and men, so implying that they procreate in the normal fashion. So that was the original conception of orcs. And Tolkien stated in a 1962 letter to a Mrs. Munsby that orc females must have existed, which is kind of a wild thought. Um, <laughs> because like dwarves, we just don't ever imagine there being females. I mean, I just can't imagine orc, orcish romance. It just does not compute. Mm-mm. But um, we already talked about this a little bit. Tolkien continually struggled with his origin story for the orcs. And um, he later toyed with other possible origins, like maybe they're corrupted men, or maybe they're fallen Maiar who have chosen to take on the physical form of orcs. And then through um, joining of other, of maybe those Maiar and uh, Maiar orcs um, procreated with men and yeah, end up with some sort of weird mixed bloodline. Um, so it's, it, it's this, he was toying with a lot of different potential origins. 
Uh, in the Lord of the Rings, we see descriptions of men that suggest they were actually men crossed with orcs. So, for example, in the Fellowship of the Rings, the sly southerner in Bree, who was a spy of Saruman and a friend of Vilferni, he looked more, a quote, more than half like a goblin. And in the Two Towers, Mary describes the men in Saruman's army as, quote, man high, but with goblin faces. And another example is a description that Aragorn echoes, he echoes Mary's description when he responds by saying, uh, quote, we had many of these half-orcs to deal with at Helm's Deep. Similarly, when Treebeard talks about Saruman's Urukai, he speculates, quote, are they men he has ruined or has he blended the races of orcs and men? That would be a black evil. So whether these descriptions are just a way of disparaging their enemy or whether it is actually known within the Lord of the Rings universe that orcs and men can be bred together and crossed, it's unclear, though I think the latter is more likely. I think we can we can um, speculate based on these comments mm-hmm. that crossing of men and orcs was something that might have been going on in, in Middle-earth. So again, that brings us back to where did the idea of orcs being bred in the mud and the slime come from? And the source for that is The Fall of Gondolin, which is one of the first legendarium stories that Tolkien ever began to write. He started it in 1917 when he was in army barracks uh, during the First World War. He was writing on the back of a sheet of military marching music, which I love that little detail. But in that story, The Fall of Gondolin, Morgoth made orcs of slime by sorcery, quote, bred from the heats and slimes of the earth. There you go. We don't get a lot more than that, but that is sort of the genesis for this idea that Morgoth created orcs, you know, that they're terrestrial beings um, that he then sort of controlled and animated with his will. Now, Tolkien eventually discarded that aspect of their, uh, of the orcish story that Morgoth sort of animated them. But um, there, there is some place in the legendarium where you see that orcs came from the heats and the slimes of the earth with which uh, Peter Jackson chose to depict as being bred in sort of muddy pods. Wow. And we have given you a pretty thorough orc back history. More than anyone ever wanted to know about orcs. Welcome. (laughs) (laughs) But it is interesting and it does work. Um you mentioned a you know this a strange slimy sorcery or something like that. And that's perfect. I mean if that's what he was going for, nailed it. Great job, Peter Jackson. His once again, his horror film background comes out full force and it works. Yeah. Did you so before we move on to the next scene when you saw that Urukai orc burst out of the pod, did you know what that, did you know, oh, that's an orc? Or did you ever think it, like, did you ever have any questions about what was going on there? I mean, it seems, it seems pretty clear that it's, he's breeding an army, you know? Yeah. Um, especially because we get that, we get the line already, build me an army worthy of mortar, and mm. that you have to assume that's what they're doing. So it seems pretty clear that it is some breed of, of, of the enemy of an orc. Yes. Right. I think there's enough cohesion with how they look. So I remember being a little confused about it. I mm. think just because I had never actually um, imagined or spent time imagining when I was reading the books how Saruman created his army. And even though, you know, Treebeard makes this reference about him breeding or crossing men and orcs, and there's other references to things like that, um, that would give you reason to imagine, well, how did he do this? I never did. And so seeing, you know, down in the 
deep chambers of Isengard than, you know, with muddy orc breeding fields. I was just like, I didn't know what I was looking at. And, uh, and I see this guy pop out and I was literally pretty confused. And I remember the last time I watched Lord of the Rings with, with Amy, <laughs> we're watching that scene and, and she was kind of half paying attention, but then she looks up and she goes, when the orc guy pops out, she goes, is that Sauron? Is that, is that Sauron? <laughs> Because she, you know, and I made me realize if you're watching this movie with no context, you might think that you might think that he is, that there's been some sort of weird, uh, you know, wizard method of transporting Sauron or re-embodying him somehow that that's what Sauron has been doing. Um, Mm. you know, kind of like Voldemort's followers trying to re-embody Voldemort that, that Sauron had figured out a way to put Sauron in a body. And because he is, he doesn't look like any of the other orcs, this Urukai. We haven't seen any orc that looks like that yet. And it's mm-hmm. this big, massive, muscly guy. He kind of looks like a boss. And so if, if you're watching this without any context or backstory, you could, and and Amy did think, well, maybe this isn't an orc. This is, is this Sauron? And I kind of laughed true. at first, but I was like, yeah, I, I could understand how you might make that mistake. Yeah, definitely. No, I could see that. That's interesting. I hadn't thought of that before. But if you have no context and also you, it's just a disembodied eye to this point. Right. It would make sense for it to take form, take shape. So, yeah, that's interesting. And especially because, I mean, Sauron is the big antagonist of the film. Um, and this particular right. Urukai is the quote unquote big bad that gets the boss that um, we have to defeat at the end of this movie so they do film him in a way to to suggest hey this urukai character he's the big bad he, he's a bad guy we got to worry about him and so because we already know that sauron's a big bad it would make sense to sort of link those together um or to assume they're connected of course they're not um, they just had to elevate this urukai character to make the fight at the end of the movie more meaningful yeah, it certainly does add, you know, more ominous aspects. Like, ooh, that's that's a scary looking, looking thing. They really, they really are breeding a massive army down there. Right. right. <laughs> well, moving on. Uh, now that we're back with the hobbits, the party stops to rest, and they see three stone trolls. Look, Frodo, it's Mr. Bilbo's trolls. The same trolls that turned to stone during Bilbo's adventure Mr. in Frodo. The Hobbit. Frodo has He's gone going cold. Pippin asks if he will die. Strider says he will soon become a wraith. He's passing into the shadow world. He'll soon become a wraith like them. As Aragorn searches for Ethelas to slow the poison, he's caught at sword point, but by the lovely elf maiden Arwen. What's this? A ranger caught off his guard? Frodo sees her ride toward him, surrounded by an ethereal light. As they care for his wounds, Arwen tells Aragorn Frodo is fading and will not last. We must get him to my father. Arwen insists on taking Frodo. She does not fear the raids, and she is the faster rider, so she will get Frodo across the river where he can be protected by her people. Ride hard. Don't look back. What are you doing? The race is still out there! An excellent, excellent introduction to Arwen. And... I think you'll agree with me, Michael, when I say I'm so glad that it is Arwen and not Glorfindel in this movie. Yeah, I, I think it's a sensible choice. I, I miss Glorfindel because he's such an awesome character, but, you know, he does nothing else in the books, you know, so it makes sense to use this opportunity to bolster another character that we will see later um, and who is 
you know, more important to the narrative in these films. Absolutely. And a strong, adding a strong female character. I mean, she is a strong female character, but this gives her, she has such gusto, such guts in this scene. I mean, she insists on taking Frodo. She won't let Aragorn take him. She says, I'm the faster rider. I'll take him across the river. Yeah, badass. Yeah. Just a total badass. And it's, it's great. And she lived Tyler so perfect as an elf. I mean, she she really, if you watch some of her other movies, you can tell that she's really speaking in a low register and changing her voice so that she sounds older and very elvish. And she's just, she's perfect in this role. I really, I think she glows on camera. She literally, but, she literally glows she on literally camera. She literally glows on camera. <laughs> yeah, I think that the, the way they introduce her, it um conveys a lot right away mm-hmm. right um you know there's the way that she catches aragorn at uh you know by putting a, a sword to his throat one it shows that she's able to sneak up on him right so he's a master tracker ranger in the wild very dangerous very skilled we've already seen you know he's defeated the nazgul he is very capable and yet she sneaks up with on him and catches him off guard and so that says immediately something about her power um but it's also kind of a flirty intro, right? Because she's kind of Definitely. having fun with him. What's this? A ranger caught off his guard. And so yeah. you also kind of realize there's kind of a bit of a relationship there. Um, and then cuts straight to her with the otherworldly light around her. And then it quickly fades into what she's actually wearing, which is, you know, uh, more woodsman-y. She looks actually more like, a lot like Tauriel in The Hobbit. Um and so that says something about the ethereal quality of elves in general. Um, it just it conveys so much in just a couple seconds. So a, a very effective introduction of this character. Yes, and I think we should just jump to the next part of the flight of the forward scene because it runs together. Well, I think and there's I, a sense of I, th- I think there are a couple things that we are, are worth like kind of common questions that I think are worth answering here. So I think a, one question that I see online sometimes is. Why does Frodo see Arwen in this way? Why do we see her mm. depicted with this, you know, ethereal light? And yes. this is, um, it's actually a bit of an inconsistency from the books. It's kind of breaking the rules and it doesn't strictly work, but the explanation is very interesting. So in the books, like we already mentioned, her character is, her role is not played by Arwen. It's played by Glorfindel. Glorfindel is an actually an ancient elf from the first age. And he lived in Valinor and lived amongst the Valar for a number of years, saw the light of the trees, from, you know, so he's, he's uh, an OG elf for sure. And when he appears, um, he's not initially seen in that form, but later on, um, he chases the nine riders into the river, the, what is it? The Brandywine River? Um, he chases the, the nine riders into there. And when Frodo sees him, he is, he has this glow to him. So actually I'll, I'll read a passage here. Uh, Gandalf explains, quote, those who have dwelt in the blessed realm live at once in both worlds and against both the seen and the unseen, they have great power. Frodo says, I thought that I saw a white figure that shone and did not grow dim like the others. Was that Glorfindel then? Gandalf says, yes, you saw him for a moment as he is upon the other side. One of the mighty of the firstborn. So the reason that Glorfindel shines 
is because he has dwelt in the blessed realm and against both the seen and the unseen, he has great power. And the, the black riders as wraiths, they live primarily in the unseen realm. And the reason Frodo, when he is becoming more and more like a wraith, so he's actually getting to a point where he can't see Aragorn and Sam and Merry and Pippin uh, the way he normally could because he's passing out of the seen realm and into the unseen realm. So he can actually see the Nazgul better. They're starting to become more in focus. And Frodo prefers the dark and the light. It's it's during the daytime that he has trouble seeing. Um, but then when he sees Glorfindel, he can see him because Glorfindel occupies both the seen and the unseen realm. When Glorfindel rides up, even though he's a bright light, Frodo can still see him because he his essence is as strong in the unseen realm, I guess. Now, the reason this is inconsistent with what we see in the movies is because Arwen, although being the daughter of Elrond, uh, of the line of the high elves, um, of the high Noldoran elves, she never lived in the blessed realm. She never lived in Valinor. She was born in Middle Earth. So actually, um, she technically wouldn't have had that quality. Uh, and we never see, for example, Legolas have that quality. We never see any other elves have that quality. So um, because elves who live in Middle Earth, they wouldn't have that that quality. But nonetheless, I'm glad they kind of broke that rule. A, because it echoes something that is beautiful about elves that we do see in the books and that I would hate to have missed. Um, and because it's such a powerful visual introduction to Arwen. So even though it's kind of breaking the rules a little bit, I'm so glad they kept that in. Yes, I think it's really effective. And I think it, it translates to the audience that he is passing into this shadowy world. He's not really he's not really present in the same way and that he's very close to darkness and light and this is clearly light coming towards him, an ethereal light that yeah. is powerful. And so I think that's what you get from that scene and that's really important because she does save him and in a very profound way at the end of this scene. Yeah. So now is, is there... <laughs> Can you answer a question for me that I can't find an answer to? What is the in-movie explanation for why Arwen is there? Why Arwen comes to rescue them? Yeah. She's been searching for... The, oh, that's a good question. So let's let's think. So she says she's been searching for them for a period of time. What is the the exact time? I can't remember, but she says it. She says, for I've been searching for you for days, I think yeah. she says. Um, so this is a bit of a she, plot hole, I think, because in, in the book, there is actually a very clear reason why Glorfindel is looking for them. And that is because while Frodo and Sam uh, are traveling uh, out of the Shire, they encounter some high Noldren elves. They meet right. Gildor and his group um, who are on their way back to Rivendell. And in the books, Gildor conveys a message to Elrond. He tells Elrond, hey, I encountered Frodo. He's carrying uh, something of great burden. He's in danger. Gandalf was supposed to be with him, um, but he's not. So we should go send out some riders to help him. So because Bot they encountered hole. Gildor, that's the reason that Elrond sent out messengers. But in the movie, they don't encounter anybody. Gandalf doesn't go to Rivendell to, to tell Elrond what the issue is obviously because he's captured by Saruman. So Elrond would have no way of knowing, at least we have no explanation for how he would know that Frodo is on the road and in need. So we don't understand. It doesn't, there's no reason why Aaron would be out there searching for them. 
Right. We never saw we never saw Gandalf tip off Elrond. We never saw any of that. I mean, I think it has to be assumed Gan- Gandalf told other people of his plan, told the elves Elrond specifically of his plan. Like that's what we could assume. But like, you're, you're on, right; it's never explicitly stated. Like maybe on the way back from, so he's in Gondor. He discovers he reads the right. text of Isildur. He discovers it's probably the One Ring. Maybe he swings by Rivendell on the way back. <laughs> or sends a message. Sends <laughs> right. a sends a raven. Wrong, yeah. wrong, uh, wrong fiction. Yeah. Well, it's book. yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a, a plot hole. Um, but it's it's fine. It's does you know it doesn't. I never noticed it really until I thought deeply about it for this. Podcast, yeah, that's a good but, question. <laughs> Um, but it, it, that led me to sort of a second plot hole. It's not a plot hole exactly, but it's, it confused me. So if Arwen is out looking for them for several days and she knows that there are wraiths behind them, right? So she has this knowledge. Mm. So she knows it's a dire situation. They are being tracked by wraiths. She's been desperately looking, looking for them. <laughs> Why, when she sees Aragorn, does she flirtatiously screw with him, you know, put a sword to his neck. Oh, I love it. I think it's, I think it's great. (laughs) I I like it. But like in that situation, she wouldn't mess around with him. You know, she'd be like, I've been looking for two days. There's wraiths behind you. Like if I put a sword (laughs) to you, you might flip out and try and fight me. It's like, (laughs) I don't know. She could probably outfight him. She is an elf. They are just superior. Yeah. Yeah. She probably wasn't even worried about that. She's like this (laughs) dumb human. That is pretty funny. She would just yeah, super I, speed out of the way. Yeah, definitely. She's fast. She's speedy. Um, she. I like that she gets to swoop in and be the hero in this scene in yeah. more ways than one. Right. And she, uh, you know, you already mentioned this, but she insists on on taking him. And Aragorn, again, it conveys there. We see that they have a relationship. He says, I'm going to go. It's too dangerous for you. And she's like, yo, bro, I'm an elf. I'm not afraid of them. <laughs> and That's I can ride right. faster. So what are you thinking? And, uh, and the, that, yes. that, that goes back to Gandalf's comment that, that elves who have dwelt in the blessed realms of Glorfindel are as powerful against both the seen and unseen world. So when Armin says, and even though Armin technically wasn't in the blessed realm, we're still getting a version of her that sort of we're assuming is powered up a little bit. And um, so when she says, I do not fear them, she very literally means that, you know, the, the, Nazgul's primary power is fear over those in the seen world because that's the nature of their power, the primary nature of their power most of the time. And that doesn't really affect her or most elves, frankly, but certainly not her. Um, so that little line, I don't fear It's not just bravery, but it's like a part of her essence. Right. And you see that play out in this next scene as she, so she's, grabs Frodo she takes him and she whispers I love when she whispers to her horse spurring her horse on in Elvish so Arwen and Frodo ride with great speed the wraiths then suddenly emerge from the woods on horseback and are right on her tail so there's a harrowing chase scene Uh, she makes it across the river where she turns to face them on the opposite bank Give up the half of she elf, they whisper, to which she draws her swords and replies, If you want him, come and claim him. If you want him, come and claim him. The wraiths start to come, but Arwen summons the river in Elvish, and the wraiths are washed away by a powerful current in the shape of horses. Frodo falls from the horse and Arwen catches him, urging him not to give up. She says a type of prayer to the Valar. What grace has given me, let it pass to him. Let him be spared, save him. What grace has given me? Let it pass to him. 
So this is, oh man, this might be the most epic scene in the whole dang movie. It, it really might be. And it's certainly one of the most iconic. I mean, you know, Definitely. she draws her sword. If you want him, come and claim him. Then they Powerful. all draw their swords. I mean, yes. get a at couple, it. Down. Yeah. It's so good. A couple of things in this scene. So this actually Peter Jackson had said, I want this scene to feel like a car chase. Mm -hmm. And I think that it really does feel like a car chase, a a, a very um, anxiety inducing adrenaline fueled scene and that there's a lot of fast cutting. So there's a lot of, you know, cut to close ups of this horse or this horse and the way that they emerge from the woods is so is so sudden and so scary. Um, But this was actually uh, shot directed by John Mahaffey, who was working on uh, the fellowship the whole time. And interestingly enough, he was the right guy, I think, for the scene because he's done a lot of Marvel movies. Hmm. So he's kind of used to action action uh, films. And I think this is such an action-fueled scene and it really keeps the tension the whole time. So I think that was very effective. And the the branch cutting uh, her cheek was a really nice touch. Yeah. Do, do you know, was that, I mean, that must have been, how do they film that? <laughs> I don't understand how they film that. I mean, cause they're... I'm not really sure. I know it wasn't Arwen riding horse, or, sorry, it wasn't Liv Tyler the whole time riding horseback, but mm-hmm. some of the time it was Liv Tyler. So I couldn't find anything on that actually happening, I have to assume it was intentional just to underscore how fast she's going and how yeah. hard she's writing. I mean, it looks so realistic that I, and I, I don't know how practical effects work, but I just am trying to think through how on earth could they fake that little scratch in a, in a one shot? Maybe they didn't. Let's, let's dig into that and see Maybe she, if yeah, that was an accident. That could be one of those things where she really got cut, but then she just rolled with it and uh, it ended up being the perfect take. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. There's a lot of interesting uh, tidbits about this particular scene, which you've probably heard. Um, this The place where they filmed it, I guess it was the Ford of Bruinen, but this area flooded. It took about, it took a few weeks, I think three weeks, they said to film it. Yeah, so but this we, area... we know it flooded because of Elrond's power, right? I mean, Exactly, but it actually <laughs> flooded and the cast had to go help barricade uh, the town with sandbags in Queenstown. Oh, wow. So they had to like leave the set and go actually help shore up the town against the flooding, huge storms. And then oh, shooting was postponed. <laughs> yeah. So what a, I, I just thought that was crazy. Like I can't imagine being on this set filming and then they're like, we have to, everybody has to go help. You know, I, I don't know. I think it's really fascinating and also what a way to be a part of the place you're in, you know, like we yeah. better. Well, they were all, they all probably felt like they were a part of the, the Auckland community, the New Zealand community, right? Because they were there for years, ultimately. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. Yeah, this, this is where things really come to a head. I mean, it's kind of like the end of the, feels like the end of an act, right? Because, Mm -hmm. and actually in the, in the books, this is the end of book one. Lord of the Rings is one novel that's broken up into six books, um, but actually released in three volumes. So Fellowship of the Ring right. has a, a couple of quote unquote books. And the end of book one is the end of the flight to the fours. And then book two starts with, you know, the Council of Elrond. And so this is really, you know, a pivotal moment. And it feel you really feel that the action, the adrenaline, um, you know, the car chase. And it is, I think, very similar to what we read in the books. It's only a couple pages in the books, but it is, mm-hmm. um, there are differences, which we'll dig into, but 
what is the same is how um, fast paced it is and mm-hmm. how dangerous it is. I mean, you really get the feeling that if they're caught by the Nazgul, this is it. And you can see that how, how hard the Nazgul are trying to catch them. You know, they're, they're riding their horses as fast as they can. The Nazgul's reaching his hand out to try and reach towards Frodo. I mean, it, it really feels like a close call. Um, one little piece of trivia that I thought was really interesting. I got this from uh, Humphrey Carpenter's, um, uh, not Humphrey Carpenter's, but uh, the Tolkien Reader's Guide or Reader's Companion. Um, but there's some great stuff in there. And also in the movie, we see that the the horse has a bit bridle, right? She's wearing a saddle. She's got a saddle. It's sort of a normal setup for a horse. But in the books, it, it is kind of said that Elves don't need any of that stuff because they're so in tune with nature. They're so in tune with other animals that they can ride bareback and that's how they prefer to ride. And so a super fan sort of noticed this issue in Fellowship of the Ring because in the first edition of the novel, it it is said that Glorfindel's horse had a bitten bridle. Um, And Tolkien changed this to a headstall, which is different. It's just more decorative and not functional. And he changed it to a headstall in the second edition because in 1958, Superfan Rona Bear wrote to Tolkien and asked why Glorfindel would use a bit and bridle when elsewhere in the Lord of the Rings it is said that elves ride without bit, bridle, or saddle. And in his response, Tol- Tolkien came up with an explanation but admitted it was just a post hoc justification for what was really a mistake. And so he changed it. Um, and you actually see this a lot in some of his letters where inquisitive fans ask him very probing questions. And <laughs> from his response, it sometimes seems he is like he's coming up with a rationalization or an answer after the fact. And I kind of, and because of that, I've noticed that I kind of like to imagine him as being a fan of his own works who in his later life was kind of creating fan fiction within his own legendarium, you know, because he was trying to answer questions or fix things or tweak things, but he had to stick with what he'd already published. So, you know, and so it's, he was kind of engaging with his own work in a creative way oftentimes spurred on by creative questions from fans who made him think about things in a new way. Right. He was always uncovering this world. Right. Even right. deeper. He was always of the opinion that this was inspi- an inspired world and he was always there to uncover more and more pieces and he remained curious his entire life, which I think is like the mark of true artistry. And right. I, yeah, I really love that. I wonder what explanation he gave. <laughs> he just said. So something that I think uh, we got to talk about here is the very end of this scene. Very, very end. You know, the last thing that happens. Um, I mean, obviously, there's the heroic moment where the Nazgul say, give up the halfling she-elf. Arwen draws her sword and says, if you want him, come claim him. And so the Nazgul start to wade into the river. Arwen uh you know, utter some sort of, I don't know, incantation or spell or something. She's basically speaking to the river and causes a great flood to wash through and, you know, washing away the the Nazgul and saving the day. But nonetheless, Frodo is succumbing to, you know, the, the poison from the blade. And so it's like he's about to die. And so Arwen sort of gives this prayer. So what's going on there? You know, we know, and we already hinted in the uh, preamble to this discussion that this is a prayer to the Valar. Um, but I think it's worth talking about, is that power coming from her? Um, is that an inner power? Is she passing, you know, she's saying, what grace is in me? Uh, maybe, you know, can it pass into him? Is that something that all elves have the capacity to transfer, sort of a healing power? Um, or what is really going on there? And we can see in the score 
the annotated score to the Lord of the Rings, which we've um, discovered from our friend Jordan Rennells, that there's a lot of interesting information in there. The choral lyrics calls this Arwen's Prayer, and the lyrics are an expanded version of the line quoted in the movie. Um, what grace is given to me, let it pass to him. Let him be spared. Mighty Valar, save him. This is There's sort of a reflection of this in the book. Um, you know, Arwen isn't actually with Frodo at this point in the books, and this, this never happens. Glorfindel doesn't pray to the Valar or anything like that. But there is sort of an interesting connection between Frodo and Arwen in the books, um, at least something that we can create a theory around. After the ring is destroyed, that's at the very end of the of the story. Arwen gives Frodo a quote, white gem like a star hanging upon a silver chain before he leaves Minas Tirith. And Arwen says, quote, when the memory of the fear and the darkness troubles you, this will bring you aid. And that's in Return of the King, um, book six, chapter six, many partings. And so they're describing, they're actually describing the gem and the necklace that she wears, which in the movies they amp that up quite a bit and it becomes um, like the symbol of her immortality. Other than the quote I just read from the novels, there's no other discussion of that particular item. So it, we don't have any reason to think that it is in fact symbolic of his her immortality. But nonetheless, it sort of suggests that she is imparting some aspect of her own grace to Frodo, some, you know, some yes. the elvish magic to give him relief from his pain. And that's kind of what she's doing here um, when he is about to succumb to the wound from the Morgul blade, she is uh, entreating the Valar to intercede on his behalf and to help relieve him from his pain. Right. According to the directors, so they actually, there is precedent and they're, they're sticking with canon in this and that uh, Arwen does give up her place to Frodo. Even though it happens later, they decided to put it in the books this way. So it actually happens um in the books after the coronation, Aragorn's coronation um, and the wedding right. are when basically there's an excerpt from the books that says a gift I will give you for I am the daughter of Elrond. I shall not go with him now when he departs to the havens for mine is the choice of Luthien. And as she, so have I chosen both the sweet and the bitter, but in my stead, you shall go ring bear when mm-hmm. the time comes. And if you then desire it, if your hurts grieve you still, and the memory of your burden is heavy, then you may pass into the West until all your wounds and weariness are healed. So she gives up her place in Valinor yeah. to Frodo. And so I think they, they say that they wanted to stick with this idea. Um, and it, I think part of it is supposed to be a bit mysterious. We're not, I don't think we're supposed to know precisely what's going on, but we know that she she saves him with with a prayer, essentially. And it's a really beautiful moment, really it, powerful. It, it really is. It's and it's a creative way of taking different aspects uh, from the legendarium and sort of repackaging them in, in a way that works for the film. So you know, mm-hmm. creating the necklace in the film so there's a visual embodiment of her immortality that they can then use, you know, she's, she gives Aragorn the gem, which is symbolic mm-hmm. of her, you know, actually it's in the movie, it sort of implies that the act of giving away that, that gem is causes her to lose her uh, immortality. Um, and so that, that is sort of a combination of what we see in the, in the actual novel where she gives Frodo a white gem, like a star, and she gives Frodo her spot on the ship to, to Valinor, um, which she'd given up in order to stay with Aragorn. So it's a, a very creative way of mixing these different things 
um, but repackaging them to create visual motifs that they can incorporate throughout the film. Yes, I think this was all smartly done and it made Arwen so iconic, which I think is wonderful. And also the spirit of the books, it comes back to our lens of adaptation. I think the spirit yeah. of the books is still preserved in that we see this this elf doing this noble deed. It's all kind of there. All the components are there. I think it's a totally a perfect swap and a, a wonderful scene. And then after she prays, you know, we go into this weird, I don't know, Elrond praying. And I just kind oh, of. Oh, we'll uh, get to that next time. I kind of pretend that, that I really happen. don't like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I just pretend I think that we're both on this, this, yeah, the next part we'll go into, I think we're both like, oh, it's like, it's like and five that was seconds, lazy filmmaking. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I think, um, you know, so we've reached the end of this scene, but something I want to talk about, uh, I love this scene and I think it does so much well. And I, I don't have any gripes with it. Um, but I just want to talk about one difference that I think really is important. And again, this isn't a complaint. This is just the movie scene is good. I know what you're going to say. The, the, the book scene is good, but they're just different. And there's an important difference. What do you think I'm going to say? I think you're going to say something that I was going to mention that doesn't really bother me, but it's a difference. The spirit of the river versus... Oh no, we got, we got different oh. gripes. We got different gripes. So give me. Oh, your... I don't really. No, I don't even want to mention my gripe because it's it's not really a gripe. Come so on, you, Scrooge McDuck, McDuck. Tell me why you hate this scene. <laughs> no, I don't. I love it. I love it. it. There's just a difference that bothers some people. Of oh, well, the river, the river itself wouldn't have washed him away. You know, the spirit of the river is not a thing. It's it's the Valar. Each Valar controls you know the elements. So this wouldn't have been. That's to get really nitpicky, which I am not. So so proceed, sir. Well, is that even something that's in the movie? Like, it, there's no reference to the spirit of the river, is there? No, there's not. But that's what you get from it, it from what is happening. To me, it seems like. Well, that's the in, first time I watched it, the first time I watched it, I got okay. She's praying. The river responds, or some deity responds via the river. That's interesting. I I didn't necessarily experience it that way. I didn't because there's no like face on the river or any. What I got from it was that Arwen was, you know, she conjured that. We're led to believe that elves have some sort of magical connection. It's just kind of like this black right. box magic. You know, we don't know how it works, right. but it's you know she has magic. She says a spell, and it causes the the river to go. Um, not that that the elf or that the river actually like as a spirit or anything like does that. does the river have agency will we know yeah not in I the books know. and not in the books probably i mean although i guess you know the river is actually <laughs> a horse spirit right because we see we see the horses horses that's how it manifests yeah as it does in the book <laughs> anyway. too I, I still like that but um yeah. Yeah, yeah no my the thing i was going to point out is um the big difference with the books is that in the books glorfindel does not ride with frodo um, when Glorfindel gets there, he says, I, you know, I've been looking, there's actually a lot of similarities in terms of the lines. He says, I've been looking for days. There's, you know, four wraiths behind you where the others are. I don't know. Um, you know, we need to be safe. And, and he starts leading them on. And, um, but it's, and at some point they sense that the Nazgul are close behind. And so he puts Frodo on the horse, shortens the stirrups and everything. And, um, at the critical moment of truth where they need to run, he he just kind of spanks the horse on the butt and the horse has to, to ride for the river as fast as it can. Um, and Frodo's all alone, okay? Um, and I think this is a big, the big difference here is that in this critical scene, 
Frodo is a brave, heroic character. And this scene is more about Frodo. Um, as is, I think the books are more about Frodo's journey than the movies. There, there are a number of instances where the movies sort of strip out Frodo's um, strength and his opportunities for bravery uh, in favor of focusing on other characters and giving other characters a moment to shine. Um, so, for example, it, in the books, in this moment where Glorfindel says, hey, you got to go, um, you know, leave us, Frodo says, uh, there's no way I'm going to leave you. I'm not going to leave my friends. You know, he's fa- he's facing like certain death and Glorfindel's mm-hmm. basically saying, go save yourself. And Frodo's like, I'm not going to leave you. Um, that is a very brave moment because he's going to stay there for his yeah. friends without hesitation. Now, Glorfindel, of course, explains, look, they're not going to stay, come after us. We're not in danger. You're at, you are actually the danger. So if you leave, we'll be safe. Um, a, and then B, you know, it's important for you to go. And so Frodo then is, is convinced to go because he realizes that his friends won't be in danger. And so that's when he goes. And the um, face-off at the river is very different because, again, it's just Frodo. And Frodo is actually, um, he's facing off against the, the ringwraiths alone. Um, and they're telling him, come back to Mordor. And he actually yells at them, you know, go back to Mordor. And they laugh at him, of course, because he's weak and they have a lot of power. And so they're laughing, you know, come back with us to Mordor. And, um, but Frodo is defiant in the face of certain death in the face of the witch King of Angmar. And he raises his sword. Um, and ultimately he is defeated. Um, and there's nothing he can do, but there's a tremendously important moment of bravery for Frodo. And that's completely stripped out in the book because he's basically dead. <laughs> I mean, he, he's he's just right. got, you know, green gunk coming out of his eyes and his mouth. And he's basically unconscious. He's very passive in this scene. And you're right. Yeah. That is a big difference. Yeah. Arwen is the hero. Aragorn is the hero. Those are the actors with agency. Frodo has no agency in this scene in the in the in the movie. I think I'm totally OK with it because we do get Frodo's heroic heroicism later and throughout actually we do get it there could have been more of it but it's they it's clear that they wanted to give this one to Arwen so I am still okay with this change although you're absolutely right to note it yeah I mean I see I see of course understand why they wanted to build up Arwen's character and that is something they had to do and this was you know we spent this whole episode talking about how effective this scene is and so I do Mm -hmm. like the scene and I think it's a great scene um but, you know, when I read The Lord of the Rings, so much of the thematic substance from it comes from Frodo's arc and his growth. Right. And it's really important, I think, to build up why he is a special hobbit. You know, yeah. Um, you know, Gandalf and Bilbo say he is probably the best hobbit in all the, all the Shire. But we don't really see why that is in the movies because mm-hmm. um, we don't get these heroic moments where, unlike other hobbits, he would resist. We don't get the moment in the Barrow Downs where he resists the opportunity to save himself and saves his friends instead. You know, I would say we don't get as many moments, but we do get we do get some of Frodo being heroic. I mean, just him striking out and trying to spare his friends to go the rest of the journey to Mordor after he abandons them after the battle with the Uruks. We do that was brave and heroic to me to try to to go it alone. Right. right. Um and there's there's instances of it but you're right, it's not as it's not as pronounced. Yeah. Definitely not. So I I want to read a couple of passages cuz I would hate to leave our listeners without 
uh, evidence of, of what I'm talking about, you know, some of his yes, heroic yes. moments. So um, <laughs> when the Black Riders first appear and Glorfindel is telling him to to ride and to flee, he, he briefly hesitates and, quote, suddenly he knew in his heart that, that they, referring to the Black Riders, were silently commanding him to wait. Then at once fear and hatred awoken him, his hand left the bridle and gripped the hilt of his sword, and with a red flash he drew it. So that's one moment. He, he's been stabbed with the Morgul blade, he has the ring, and the Nazgul, who have some power over him, are exerting their will to make him stay. But he resists in that moment. Right. And, and, and anger overcomes him, and he draws a sword. So he's having a heroic moment even before he's he's riding on. Um, but then, you know, Glorfindel gets the horse to to run and so um, now there's the big car chase which is really exciting once he gets to the ford he stops on the other side of the river and quote suddenly the foremost rider spurred his horse forward it checked at the water and reared up with a great effort frodo sat upright and brandished his sword go back he cried go back to the land of mordor and follow me no more his voice sounded thin and shrill in his own ears the riders halted but frodo had not the power of bombadil his enemies laughed at him with a harsh and chilling laughter. Come back, come back, they yelled. To Mortar, we will take you. Go back, he whispered. The ring, the ring, they cried with deadly voices. And immediately their leader urged his horse forward into the water, followed closely by two others. By Elbereth and Luthien the Fair, said Frodo with a last effort, lifting up his sword, you shall have neither the ring nor me. So like, how awesome is that? Oh, it is so, it's so awesome. Thank you for giving Frodo his due. Because that is, that is truly heroic. He is defying them till the bitter end. And it is a, a beautiful thing to witness the courage of a hobbit. Because hobbits are not known for their courage. Yeah. And it's the second <laughs> so time that, that he invokes Elbereth. Because um, in, in the books, you know, he invoked Elbereth, the name of Elbereth on Weathertop, and that's what scared the Witch King away. Uh, and in the movies, again, they change that moment. So he, Frodo does not he have just any. He falls agency. all over himself. He just he just, just trips falls, and falls. Trips and falls. And it's Aragorn who saves Frodo. the day. Yeah, it's yeah, true. <laughs> I mean, he's so he's so derpy in the movies. Like you know, he has a few heroic moments, but really, he's just like I he's don't unconscious. know how derpy, but uh, but more <laughs> passive. Yeah, yeah, a little more passive. Yes. Um, and a little more, a little more juvenile. Remember, in the books, he's much older, right? Than he is in the movies, obviously. Well, thank you so much for listening, coming on this journey in my favorite scene out of all of the scenes of Fellowship of the Ring. Well, that will conclude this episode of Watch Party: Lord of the Rings on Prime. Of course, if you like what we're doing, please share us with your friends. Tell all the other Lord of the Rings fans in your life about us. Please rate, review, and subscribe. Um, that will really help promote us and help other people to find us you can find us on twitter at lotr party on instagram at lotr on prime facebook and you can email us at watchpartylotr at gmail.com we would love to hear from you until next time may the hair on your toes never fall out All right, Jen, I got I got some sweet fire for you for the Grey Havens. Woo, sweet fire. I do like sweet fire. So this is about the, the part of the movie that we covered uh, in the main episode here. And in the extended edition, 
of the films. They actually cut this in the theatrical, but in the extended, they run into uh, Bilbo's trolls. And, mm-hmm. you know, Frodo is gasping and about to pass out. And uh, and Sam is trying to comfort him by saying, look, Frodo, you know, here's Bilbo's trolls. And so there's a reference mm-hmm. to that. In the, in the books, it's a little, the circumstances are a little different. Frodo isn't feeling quite as dramatically bad. You know, in the books, they're traveling for several days. Uh, in the movie, they kind of compress it. I mean, Sam says it's six days to Rivendell. He'll never make it. So he, he does kind of say it'll take six days. Um, but it doesn't feel like six days. It just feels like Frodo is on the edge of death like the entire time. And he's incapacitated. incapacitated. But in the book, he goes through moments. Sometimes he feels better. Sometimes he feels worse. Um, and he's never quite on on the edge of death like he is in the movies. And when they get to Bilbo's Trolls, He's actually in pretty good spirits. He's he's feeling a little healthier and he calls for a song. Hey, let's lighten the mood. Let's have a song. And so Sam stands up and sings a song that he wrote. Um, it, it's a troll song. And I'm going to read a stanza here because I think it's really interesting. Troll sat alone on his seat of stone and munched and mumbled a bare old bone. For many a year he had gnawed it near for meat was hard to come by. Done by, gum by. In a case in the hills, he dwelt alone and meat was hard to come by. In standard Tolkien fashion, this song goes on for like a page and a half. And it's mostly a nonsense song about some guy, Tom, who walks up to a troll and complains to the troll that he is eating the leg of his Uncle Tim. And then the song ends with the troll catching Tom and eating his leg as well. So it's kind of this really a, a silly song that Tolkien spends a lot of uh, ink sharing with us. But when I was reading through it in preparation for this episode and rereading it, for the first time, I noticed something really amazing that I know you're going to love. So for, to really understand what I discovered for our listeners, I had to take y'all back into ancient Jen and Michael history. So we're both bluegrass musicians. We both grew up playing bluegrass folk music. And when we were kids, we both were big fans of a band called Nickel Creek. I'm still a big fan. Yeah. Oh, me too. Um, they were really popular. They're about our age, you know, probably five, six, seven years older, but kind of like a, the same generation. And their breakout album was in 2000, which is right around the same time that the Lord of the Rings films were coming out, notably. Uh, but their breakout album was nominated for a couple of Grammys, and they were the first band to really pull bluegrass into popular culture in some way. Um, they had a lot of pop appeal. They were young. They were hip. You know, Chris Thiele had spiky hair. They were so cool. It was like for bluegrass musicians, it was like, oh man, bluegrass can be cool. Um, so we all love Nickel Creek. And there was a song on that album that obviously caught my eye because it was called In the House of Tom Bombadil. And this is an instrumental tune that, that Chris Thiele wrote. Chris Thiele is like a genius mandolinist. These are, I mean, they weren't just... He's a mandolin god. Yeah. A mandolin deity. I mean, these these guys weren't just uh, popular. Um, you know, they weren't like Hoobastank level musicians who just like had some pop hit. They were, they're like musical geniuses, especially Chris Thiele, um, but also Sean and Sarah Watkins are just brilliant musicians. And so they're legitimately great, but also having you know breakout pop appeal. So that's why they are so hugely popular. But Chris Thiele is also a big Tolkien fan. And I assume the Watkins uh, siblings were also, um, but I know that Chris Thiele is a big Tolkien fan. He's talked about in other interviews and he wrote this song called In the House of Tom Bombadil. Um, well, on that album was another old traditional folk song called The Fox. He prayed for the moon to give him light For it many a mile to go that night Before he reached the town, oh, town, oh, town, oh He many a mile to go 
It has totally different lyrics from the troll song, but as I was reading the troll song, I couldn't help but notice that it has an identical rhyme scheme to the fox, which is a traditional folk song, a traditional bluegrass song. And so I, I thought to myself, okay, maybe that's a common rhyme scheme for folk songs. You know, maybe there are other other folk songs that have this. And so there's some similarity there for that reason, some historical similarity. But then I was thinking, well, I know a lot of folk music and I know a lot of bluegrass songs. And actually the, the structure of the Fox is not really that common. Uh, it's not that it's a complex song, but it has sort of an atypical rhyme scheme, especially for folk and bluegrass music. So I thought, this is kind of a unique song. What are the odds that these, that it would have the exact same rhyme scheme as the troll song? So I was like, all right, well, I'm going to go look up a recording of Tolkien um, and see if I can find a recording of him reading the troll song. Because I knew that there were some recordings of Tolkien reading various passages from the books. So I, I, I looked and lo and behold, I did find a recording of him reading the troll song. And in fact, kind of in a sing-songy voice. Did he have a tune in mind? That's what I wanted to know. Um, and of course, I was like, oh, there's no way it's, it's similar. Um, but when I found the video, well, you can just listen to what I discovered. Standing up with his hands behind his back as if he was at school, he began to sing to an old tune. <coughs> a troll sat alone on his seat of stone and munched and mumbled a bare old bone. For many a year he had gnawed it near, for me it was hard to come by, some by, gum by. In a cave in the hills he dwelt alone, and me it was hard to come by. Up came John with his big boots on, says he to troll, play what is yarn. For it looks like the shin of an Uncle Jim, there should be a loin in graveyard, caveyard, paveyard. This many a year has Jim been gone. And I thought he was lying in graveyard. He ran till he came to the farmer's pen. The ducks and the geese were kept there in. He said, a couple of you are going to grease my chin before I leave this town. Oh, town, oh, town, oh. A couple of you are going to grease my chin before I leave this town. Oh. It's the exact same song. Exact same song. Yeah, I mean, it was undoubtedly inspired by the that his troll song was undoubtedly inspired by the fox song which was an early it was an early middle english poem wasn't it originally and then yeah so um the troll song is is a reworking of an earlier poem that Tol- tolkien had written which he said was written to the tune of uh, a traditional song which in hammond and skull's readers companion confirms but the tune he had in mind was A Fox Went Out on a Winter's Night, which is, when I say the fox, it's, it's the exact same tune. And I wonder if Amazing. Nickel Creek knows that they featured not one, but two songs related to The Lord of the Rings on their breakout album. Two songs. If they don't know, now they know. We're going to send them this episode, yeah. this Grey Havens. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I mean, Nickel Creek was the soundtrack to my childhood and my adolescence. So, And obviously Tolkien was what I was reading. So what a beautiful synergy here <laughs> to find this out. An amazing discovery. I was so excited when I discovered it. So just so excited oh, to share so it with cool. you. And if you haven't heard the Fox the Fox song, it's a it's a wonderful song. And you should look it up by Nickel Creek. But yep. also if how fun to hear Tolkien's voice. I don't know that I've heard him speak before. Yeah, the, there are a number of recordings out there of him reading different passages. You know, you can find recordings of him reading um passages with Gollum. So you hear how he envisioned Gollum's voice sounding, 
which is different, you know, of course, a different take than Andy Serkis's take. And it's just so cool to hear the man himself read these original passages and especially the songs. You know, it, it can be hard for a lot of people to read the poems because they think of them as poems. But a lot of times the poetry in the Silmarillion or in the Lord of the Rings, um, they're intended to be songs and sung to a tune, a tune that Tolkien might have had in mind, but of course couldn't convey in the text of the book. And so it's kind of a loss to us unless you go deeply digging like I did and find a recording of him um, uh, singing it. So it's uh, that was a it. wonderful discovery for me. It's wonderful. And this is all just laying the groundwork for Lord of the Rings, the musical, which we will be discussing next time. No, yeah, it, just kidding. In production by Watch Party Productions. <laughs> Maybe someday. Stay tuned, folks. <laughs>